What's your name? Dan Hayes. What's your current job and how long have you held it? Uh, Twins beat writer for The Athletic in about seven months. How many years have you covered Major League Baseball as a scribe and how many teams? Twelve years, three teams. What's your name? Matt Hurst. What's your current job and how long have you held it? I do PR for Amazon Web Services. I've been at Amazon for almost two years. Before leaving journalism, how many years did you cover baseball as a scribe and for what team? As a beat reporter for four years covering the Angels. Covered baseball probably for seven years, multiple teams. Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams, we're talking baseball with former and current ball scribes. The stories behind the stories getting into journalism, leaving journalism, the changing media landscape. Hopefully this will be funny or else it was a complete waste of our time. This is Life Around the Seams. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, you spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Seams, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. So if my math is correct, the three of us have a combined 21 years of Major League Baseball as uh, beat writers. If you count my time with the Dodgers as a radio quasi-beat reporter, that's 25. And I got five teams. The five from California, A's, Giants, Dodgers, Angels, Padres, and also the White Sox and the Twins. So seven of the 30 teams, one of us has been around on a daily basis. All right, so uh, my friend Beto Duran always says, uh, get to the point right away, Sushan. Uh, so before we get to the point, explain where we are, Matt, and what we're doing. We are currently sitting in a hotel room in Columbia, South Carolina, the fourth straight year of our annual football weekend trip. So a few years ago, at spring training, Dan, Josh, and I decided that, hey, it would be cool to go around each year and see different football stadiums and combine it with a college game on Saturday and an NFL game on Sunday. Our first year, we went to the Red River Rivalry in Dallas, Texas. We had tickets to go to the Rangers-Blue Jays playoff game if we were going to pull off the trifecta, but we did not end up going, and we also hit the Cowboys-Patriots. The following year, we did Thursday Night Football in Lambeau, went up to Ann Arbor to be at the big house and hit the Lions game. Last year we did University of Washington and the Seahawks, and this year we are doing South Carolina, and then on Sunday, the Carolina Panthers. But before all that, we're going to record a podcast talking baseball. All right, I want to begin with this. Uh, Let me start with you, Matt, since you're holding the microphone. Give me your first, I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this moment. As a beat writer? Yeah. Probably the first day I walked in and into the uh, Angels Clubhouse, and was just like, holy crap, I am getting paid to do this. Uh, And there was a little bit of of shock, you know, because I was 25. 
I believe at that time I was the youngest beat writer on the entire Major League Baseball circuit, if not very close to it. And it was it was like um, my dream come true because at, when I was 17 years old, all I wanted to do was become a Major League Baseball beat writer for for a newspaper. And eight years later, there I was doing it. Yeah. I was going to say something really quick. Because of the athletic this last year, at 25, you'd actually be an old man now. You guys can't <laughs> even imagine how many young people there are, like 22, just out of college. They get a beat because so many jobs opened up this year. It's insane. Like, the movie references I use, these kids were, like, born after or born before that movie was – or you know what I'm saying. I feel old this year, so – that's crazy that it's come along that way in 10 years. And what was your best? Now, whether it's the first year or whether it's this past year when you're like, I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this. I mean, without question, it was the first year because I was covering the Padres. And, you know, we're all California guys. I, I grew up a Giants fan. And Greg Maddox was on the, the Padres that year. And I relayed a story to him about how in 1993, during the middle of that amazing pennant race, that the Giants won 103 and the Braves won 104. You know, Greg Maddox was pitching, and we were late, and it was 4 nothing. It was 95 degrees, and I know you guys know in San Francisco when it's 95 degrees, it's like 120 everywhere else because there's just it's the worst place in the world when it's hot. So we decided to sit in the stadium club in the Hofbrau because the game was over. It was 4 nothing. By the time we walked in, we were really late driving from Sonoma County. And I told Greg Maddox the story, and he sits there, and he looks at me for a second. He's like, Oh, yeah, that's right. That's that time when we went in there and we rat-fucked them. <laughs> that was amazing. Okay, so there was no RFing in mine. But also to show how naive I was on my first day, I was so excited to get my BBWAA card, my Baseball Writers Association of America, proving I was a beat writer. And I was showing it off to the other writers, and all these crusty old ball writers are shrugging their shoulders like, whatever, kid. I'm also in a button-down dress shirt and slacks, and everyone's in like jeans and tired Hawaiian shirts. And Very I, tired. Yeah, and I realized then that okay, um, I, I guess I need to have a different mindset. I was certainly over the moon to be doing what I wanted to do. I think my all-time favorite moment was actually just a regular season trip. It was 2002, and the Giants went on a road trip to San Diego, New York, and Toronto. And San Diego was always exciting because back where I went to school. And I'm promoting my book about Barry Bonds, and I'm still doing a ton of media on all these trips. And Bonds hit another, like, 500-foot home run um, at the old uh, Jack Murphy Stadium. And then you go to New York, and it was Yankee Stadium. It was interleague. And Bonds hit one into orbit in that, in that series that as well in that one. Yeah, that was the one that – Off Ted Lilly. Yep, absolutely. Upper deck, and, like, it just disappeared. Yeah, and I remember, like, going up there with, like, uh, Dan Brown from the Mercury News to interview, like, the person who caught it. We thought that we'd be like, you know, oh, okay, we're going to get, like, a cool quote. And the next thing I know, I turn around, and there's, like, seven other scribes that are also, like, trying to, like, do the interview. And I'm like, this is the worst thing ever. Like, all these poor people are just trying to watch a baseball game, and suddenly every writer from the Bay Area is trying to interview these guys in row 15 of the upper deck for where Bonds' home run landed. A uh, segue on that story about – Two, three days later, the Yankees were in San Diego playing the Padres. We went out to this uh, bar downtown. It was brand new. Somehow they coerced Derek Jeter into opening the bar. My roommate – Wait, opening the yeah, bar? They, they paid him an appearance oh, fee. Oh, okay. And, and he showed up with his entourage. My roommate makes his way over to Jeter about 20 minutes before we're leaving, around 12.31 a.m., and he says to Jeter, dude, that Barry Bonds home run the other day, what would you think of it? He went – 
And he mouths, it went far. And it was like my roommate's <laughs> peak of his life at that point. He was so excited that Derek Jeter said that to him. And then the third leg of the trip was Toronto. And I'm pretty sure that was the first time that I'd been to Toronto. And I remember taking, uh, with Josh Rawich, we took a bus and went to Niagara Falls like one morning. And then we ended up in the bar where they filmed um, from uh, uh, Goodwill Hunting, the scene where uh, he says to the girl, do you like, you know, he says to the guy, do you like apples? I got her number, how you like them, them apples? And we go in there and the bartender was super cool and the World Cup is going on. And I mentioned how I'd read about this bar in this like United magazine like two years before and I always wanted to go there. And, uh, and, and he thinks that that's a cool story. And then he comes up to us at like at 2 a.m. And he said, hey, we're going to close the doors, but you guys can stay as long as you want. Your money's no good here. So we played Golden Tea and watched the World Cup uh, with fans from like Austria or whatever country was playing until like 4 or 5 a.m. And then like we went back the next day. And the bartender uh, asked me, uh, you know, where are we going next? And I started going back home, and he said, you know, who are the Giants playing? This one I was covering the Giants. And uh, I said, oh, it's interleague. The Giants are going to play the A's next. And he goes, hey, would you mind bringing something to Billy Koch, the A's closer at the time? And I was like, yeah, sure, why not? I'll hand deliver some random item from this bartender in Toronto back to Billy Koch. Sure, what do you got? So he hands me this package that's wrapped up, and I was like, okay, sounded like a good idea. Put it in my suitcase. Take it across country lines or they, whatever. They didn't ask you, like, did you pack your own bag? Have you received gifts from <laughs> They other probably people? did ask those questions, and I probably lied. So then, I remember, I'm covering the Giants, so I show up the next day in the Ace Clubhouse, and I go up to Billy Koch, and I'm like, uh, uh, hey, you know, my name's Josh, I work for the Oakland Tribune, and he's like, yeah, and I go, um, I have something from you, for you, from this bartender in Toronto, and his eyes light up, he's oh, yeah, I love that guy. So I'm like, okay, this is pretty safe. And so I hand him, and it was basically just like a picture frame that this guy had like cut out of a newspaper and wrote like some funny lines on. So anyways, I remember just like handing that to Billy Koch going, wow, what a surreal world that this bartender in Toronto just gave me something to give to Billy Koch. But I was just thinking back on San Diego, Yankee Stadium, Toronto, and I was like, oh, my goodness, I got paid to do this. That's honestly, you mentioned that. The first thing I think of is, damn, that's a hell of a road trip. Like, right? Like, and this would be a great topic for a different podcast. <laughs> Like, ideal road trips. What would your, like, best three cities be for a 10-day trip where you don't have to tire yourself out so much because you're out every night? Uh, I mean, uh, not every night. Sorry, Mom, if you're listening. (laughs) There were certainly cities when you traveled where you're like, this is a sleep city. And others where you're like... This is not a What's your sleep city? city? What's your sleep city? Uh, for me, it was Arlington, Texas. Was Apologies to all of the people in Arlington. Hey, but uh, No, but it's more Arlington. Like, we had a great time in Dallas a couple of I had ago. a really no, good time in Arlington. 100%. Uh, but and I like you, Fort Worth. I actually had a great time in Fort Worth this last year. But Arlington, there's like a Boston's. There's like, that's, it's the restaurant. And they have their their IPA was like, a, a, what, what's Fat Tire's IPA? That uh, Ranger that was their IPA. It's like the craft beer movement is exploding, and they have this terrible IPA. Oh, they no, it was the Sam Adams IPA. That's my initial and only impression of Arlington is chains, chilies, and uh, there's a lot of chains. There's there's that's all it was, and a, a, a theme park too. So it kind of depends on. So Arlington again. Ar- I had some fun in Arlington, but but it depends on. Where you where you stayed where you stayed, but also where do you, where were you before and where are you going after? Yeah, well, where I stayed was that courtyard that you could walk to. That's not bad. I stayed there. Yeah, but lunch at Papados every day, and <laughs> yes, then the one bar. That's it. Because there's there, before Jerry World was built, that was it. That, there was nothing else there. So rather than staying in downtown Dallas and trying to explore Dallas, 
most people stayed at that courtyard, and you just kind of hung out. You guys know uh, Mark Gonzalez, right? Yeah, uh, of course. Chicago. Now he's the Cubs beat writer. Um, he stayed at that courtyard. His all-time story from that is one of the dudes that worked there. There were, you know, if you stay on the first floor, there are lizards, and they can get in your room. So the lizard comes in his room, and he calls security, and they come, and the guy comes out there, and the dude smokes out the lizard. He's like, look, I'm getting it high. No way. And Who did this? The, the the worker from the courtyard. This was like 10, 15 years ago, but Gonzo was like, yeah, the guy's just laughing because he's getting the lizard high, blowing the weed on him. I'm sure this is exactly what you envisioned with this podcast. Yes, it's going to swimming so far. Yes, uh, so. yes, it's going swimmingly. All right, so let's take it for a, a different turn. Now, you can't use this next question, Matt, about why you left. But give me the, I can't believe I'm doing this. What is wrong with my life? That's a good one. Um, maybe, maybe a Toronto. You mean what's wrong with my life? Like why am I unhappy potentially? Sure, anything. Sure. So uh, one, getting to Detroit one year. Staying in downtown Detroit, which is still sketchy, or, you know, last time I was there it was, um, and walking into my hotel room, and to get my key, there's bulletproof glass on the uh, registration counter, and I did not leave my room other than to go to the ballpark. I was freaked out. That's one. The Riverside Press Enterprise <laughs> spared no expense to make sure I that have you were several of those, but that one's the most telling. Uh, also, when I went next door to get food, and I got a salad, and they put slices of american cheese on it um like like velveta like that you would put on a hamburger okay um, yep. on a right. salad okay like a or no up? like a full they didn't even rip it okay so the second is in toronto covering an 18 inning uh two to one slugfest between the angels and the blue jays and was needing to check out of the hotel um to catch an early flight to new york the next day. So as the game gets to the eighth inning, it was moving very fast. It was a pitcher's duel and thinking, great, I'm going to get you know six hours of sleep and go to New York and hit the ground running. It'll be fun. It'll be fine. Uh, last 18 innings, did not sleep a wink because by the time I got to my hotel room, I had to go catch a flight and didn't sleep. You know, It's like an hour flight. Landed, and my uh, girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, flew red-eye to come hang out in New York with me for that series. And she's dead tired because she didn't sleep on the flight. And you just had two zombies walking around New York. And I had to go cover a game that next day. Um, so that was kind of the whole, hey, this is glamorous, but it's not. I always go back to 9-11. 9-11 was mine when, you know, I'll never forget the Sunday before, Bonds hits three home runs at Coors Field, 61, 62, 63. And I remember thinking, he's going to break this record, and I need to write a book about it. And I remember being on the phone uh, with my friend, uh, Eric Winter, and he said, if you write it, I'll figure out a way to, to publish it. So now September 10th was an off day in Houston. I remember flying in and starting to like think about, okay, I've never written a book. How am I going to do this? And then the next morning, I get a phone call, and it's Nick Peters from the Sacramento Bee. And Nick says, kid, turn on the TV. The world's coming to an end. Where were you guys? In Houston. And I was at this Marriott that was right next to a hospital in Houston. So there was already ambulances that were constantly bringing people to the hospital. Not because it was anything to do with 9-11, but because they were just sick. And being in Houston, all the games were canceled for an entire week. And not being able to leave. And 
I remember like, what do you do? So you lean on the older, more experienced writers, and they say you go to the team hotel and you got to get something. And going there and trying, like, well, but really? So the Giants game got canceled. Big deal, right? But we got to file some sort of story. I don't even remember what the sports page looked like the next day. But I remember in those three or four days, like, I already knew that baseball, like, look, we just work in the toy department. But I remember in those three or four days just going like, What's the point? Like, what is the point of what we do? What's the point of writing? I know this got really depressing in a hurry. <laughs> Did <laughs> but, you have to file every day during the I'm the pretty week sure off? that I filed something every day. And then, but I remember, like, writing a story about phrases that we use in ball writing or in baseball. Like, oh, he hit a bomb. Them. Right. Is Ladies. it really appropriate to say he hit a bomb? You know, or that right fielder threw a missile home. And I was like, what, do I, what am I really doing with my life, right? When all these things are going on in the real world and I'm writing about Barry Bonds' bombs that he's hitting. And I remember just being really uncomfortable thinking, I don't know if I'm really comfortable with what I'm doing with my life right now. But I got over it, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, there's not a ton of times I've questioned it, although I would say maybe yesterday, driving. Uh, Explain to, your day yesterday. Yeah, um, Wednesday I got word that they were going to hire a manager, the Twins, you guys know baseball doesn't allow for news to be broken on days of games. So the Thursday, during the World Series, yeah, sorry. Um, So on the Thursday, that's the day off. That's your your window. So Wednesday, the Twins hired their manager, Rocco Baldelli. Got word probably around 4 o'clock. Knowing then that I had to be at... Minneapolis, at some, and I live in Chicago for this job, by the way. Uh, people should probably know that. It's a 405-mile drive. The story makes a lot more sense now. Yeah, it does. It does. Uh, it's a 405-mile drive, but it's actually no other than being in Chicago at the start and being in Minneapolis at the end. There's no cities, major cities. There's no traffic spots. So once you're on the road, it's, it's a six-hour drive max every time. It's great. Um, it's not that bad. But, um, you know, knowing at 4 o'clock i got to be up there on Thursday – not knowing when yet, and then I got tipped off, all right, probably early afternoon. Well, I suck at mornings. So, you know, <laughs> that's why we do this job pretty much. It's nights. Like, you, you like sleeping in. It's a, it's a good job if you like to sleep till 9 o'clock in the morning or 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, so I decided at 11 o'clock at night on Wednesday to drive. By the way, you would not like minor league baseball. Continue. Oh, yes. No, I know. Uh, buses would suck. Like, all that stuff. Uh, but anyways, uh I left at 11 o'clock at night from Chicago. I got a hotel room in the Wisconsin Dells, which is halfway. I got there around 2 a.m. Mid-drive, as I, and I was texting you guys about this, mid-drive, news breaks, and we had a story ready on one of the two possible candidates. The other candidate, we had a bunch of background work done, but I hadn't written it yet. The story broke that the other candidate was getting it. So I have this thousand-word story on one candidate, and I have about 100 words on the other candidate. So I pull into the Dells at 2 a.m. I start writing that story. I have to transcribe still, which, by the way, as you guys know, the worst part of the job, without question, transcribing. Um, I finish at 3.45. I fell asleep at 4, knowing I had to wake up at 7.38 to get it confirmed because everybody's asleep at that point. Get it confirmed. Start making phone calls. Leave the hotel at 10 a.m. Get to Minnesota because it's still three and a half hours to go. I left at 10.30. I got there at 2 right in time for this one interview, press conferences at 3, did the work the room for two hours, transcribed, left at 5.15 to drive back to Chicago so I could get home to fly for this trip at 7.40. So you could be here and do this podcast. So I could be here and do this podcast. That was the whole point. Had to skip a Nine Inch Nails concert with my girlfriend. She went with her brother um, and had a great time. I picked them up afterwards. So 
got to skip basically life for 24 hours to go cover this press conference and then wrote the story on the plane today. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of hellish. Um, the other but you weren't questioning why you do this. No, it was just a long day. Right. And that's, the, that's my whole point. There is one time I did have a question why we were doing this. We were in Baltimore for the, when the riots happened a couple of years ago. I woke up, and National Guard was surrounding my hotel. They closed the game down. It was the Freddie Gray when that went down. Um, it was the week of his funeral which was like a week or two after. And they'd had some stuff over the weekend that actually affected Camden Yards. I think the restaurant there got the glass windows shattered during a game, and they were really worried that fans would be hurt. So on Monday, the funeral happens, and all of a sudden at 5 o'clock, helicopters are everywhere. You can smell smoke. They essentially they cancel the game right then and there. We get sent home. Like the, the police at the ballpark are telling us, run to your hotel. Go back. There's a curfew in the town. Wake up the next day. There's like a hundred National Guard vehicles. I didn't, you know, I'm a heavy sleeper, um, but I still woke up at like 8:30 to these loud engines. And all of a sudden, there's dudes with machine guns right outside my hotel. And it was the most surreal three days. I mean, I hadn't been in San Diego at that point for five or six years. And San Diego TV is calling me because they see me tweeting about it. The the station I was an intern at. They're like, hey, would you go on the live? And I'm like why i'm a sports reporter you know like but with the game with no fans and it just it felt so weird to be at an event like that when real life is happening around you tell us something about the game with no fans that we didn't previously know i mean it was just a surreal weird experience the minute the the white Sox gave up six runs in the first inning and you guys know what getaway day is like or you guys know what the last day of spring trains like where everybody just wants to get out of there the minute it was 6 nothing, it went on fast forward, and it was the fastest game, and it was the oddest, worst experience I've ever had at a game because there's all these, like, social cues that you get from being at a game, and you, the rhythm of a game, it's all based on the buzz on the of the fans. crowd and cheering, yeah. booing. And instead, you're just sitting. They had a seventh inning stretch. They, oh, they had a seventh inning stretch. Uh, Caleb Joseph, the, the Orioles catcher, went over and faked waving to fans and signing autographs and stuff like that, flipped the ball to a fan in the crowd and stuff. The, the coolest moment of it, um, we're about 10 feet below the, uh, the press level, is 10 feet below the announcer's booths. And when Chris Davis hit his three-run homer, Gary Thorne's voice comes booming down from above, and everybody in the press box hears it. And we're just dying because it's so loud and laughing. Uh, and, you know, I worked at Comcast at the time. Apparently later I found out from the broadcast that Hawk and Stone are doing their call right there. And uh, you could hear Gary Thorne's voice through the wall booming through in their broadcast. So it was just so surreal. I don't know if there's anything that I know that people don't know. It was just a weird experience in general. Um, and and I, don't, I wouldn't want to do it again. Well, one more quick one, if I may. When Dan was talking about his drive from Chicago to Minneapolis. It reminded me also that me and uh, Doug Padilla, who's still writing somewhat for ESPN, I believe, he was a beat writer as well. We missed our connection from Tampa Bay to Minneapolis. We were stuck in Chicago, and they couldn't get us on a flight until 4 p.m. the next day, which, as you guys know, you need to be at the ballpark by then. So he and I rented a car and drove through the middle of the night from Chicago to Minneapolis 
to get to the ballpark, and you're driving, like Dan was saying, there's not a whole lot there. You're driving through darkness. We picked up some random dude. He's sitting in the back seat. No way. You picked no, up no, 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 not like a hitchhiker, oh. a guy who also missed the connection. Oh, okay. Um, and he was all jacked at the Chicago airport. He's like, I'm going to get coffee, and I'll drive. And he got this huge thing of Starbucks. He was asleep in 20 minutes. Some traveler. So oh, just another dude on the flight. Who's on our flight, or who missed the connection. Okay. Yeah, and, he, and anyway, so. So you made a friend. Well, no, he slept the whole time, and Can I had to. Smell? Doug was driving, and I had to stay awake to keep him awake because it was I don't know 11 p.m. and we rolled into Minneapolis as the sun's coming up, and we probably got you know four hours of sleep, and then you had to go cover a game. But you filed. Of course I did. But you filed on time. Hit the deadline. These all sound like such hashtag like 21st century problems, right? Okay, so I'm going to steal this next topic from your. Employer, Mr. Uh, Mr. Dan Hayes. Richard Deitch, very good media reporter, did a, a series, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, and he had various people describe the worst team that they covered. Now, it could be because their one-loss record was terrible. It could just be because they were in over their head. They didn't know what they're doing. Some chose a team that was very successful but just had a bunch of personalities that were just not fun to be around. So it's pretty open-ended about what is the worst team that you covered. And so, Dan, since you have 12 years, what is the worst team that you covered? You've got mostly the Padres. you got, what, five years Padres, six years White Sox? Correct me here. Five years, five and a half Padres, five and a half White Sox, one Twins. Okay. So what team are you going to throw under the bus for the worst team that you covered? I'll throw in the, the caveat that my dad was, like, sick at the time. He had prostate cancer. He was fine afterwards. But the 2008 Padres lost 99 games, and that summer – that was the year that uh, the the economy started to crash, so we stopped traveling in the part of the like in April. So this is my second year on the beat, and all of a sudden the boss is like, "You can't travel anymore, except to L.A." I'm like, "Oh, thanks. This is <laughs> awesome." So you take away all my fun. I missed a, because we stopped traveling. The next year I missed a no hitter. Never seen a no hitter still in 12 years. Still pissed about that one. Um, but the 99 o- losses. 99-08 Padres was like miserable the whole way. Trevor Hoffman, who was one of the greatest guys to cover, didn't have a very good season. Uh, it ended up being his last year with the Padres. They were boring offense, worst offense I've ever seen. Because Petco Park plays so big, it's always going to be a 3-2 to two game. Well, all of a sudden they're losing 5-2 to two and 7-2. to two. The defense fell apart. Jim Edmonds replaced uh, – they put him in center field. They brought him in. And, and by the way, if, if, if baseball was analytically inclined then the way that they are now, Jim Edmonds wouldn't even have been on a field anymore, let alone center field at Petco Park because he was like 37 and his body was broken down. They took Mike Cameron. They let Mike Cameron go um, as a free agent. And they went from a dude who could cover multiple – like the entire outfield to a guy who covered about a third of it. And, you know, if you're at Petco Park and giving up hits like that right and left, I mean, it was just a miserable, dragged-on season. And I didn't know how to handle it because it was like, you know, the year before the Padres went to game 163 and they were a good team. And all of a sudden I'm just covering this terrible team that nobody wants to read about. My bosses are trying to tell me to write a different way. And, you know, I'm, like, still brand new at this. And I had no idea how to do it. Twelve years later, I am so well-versed in covering bad teams. (laughs) I think that my worst one was 2011 Dodgers. Either 2010 or 2011. They kind of blend together. So 2010 was the year that Frank and Jamie McCourt are going through the divorce. And 2011 is the year that Frank has already bought out Jamie at this point. But the team um, 
he's struggling to make payment, um, you know, every 15 days or whatever it is that the checks come out. Major League Baseball had to assign somebody to oversee what the Dodgers were doing. Now, I had – I wore a lot of different hats, one of which was co-hosting post-game Dodger talk. So you have all of these Dodgers fans who are furious because the team's terrible because they do not have the money to go sign players. Uh, 2010 was Joe Torre's last year, and that started to get awkward toward the end. 2011 was Don Mattingly's first year. Um, there was an unofficial boycott that's going on in the stands. I remember at one point somebody somebody called up to Dodger Talk, and they said, oh, I didn't think that we could talk about like all of this off-field stuff. And I was like, well, of course we could. And then I, like, I found out that one of our call screeners was basically telling people for like a month that, oh, no, you can't talk about that. I was like, well, why not? So I remember being really annoyed that um, – and I don't think this call screener was doing anything uh, malicious. I think the call screener was probably just trying to protect the station or protect somebody. Um, you know, So you're basically the front end of all of these extremely disgruntled Dodgers fans, like on the front lines, and you, you're hearing them on, on, as they call up, complaining about what's going on, everything that's wrong with the team. Oh, by the way, the station I was working for, which was my employer, it was the final year of the contract – the writing was on the wall the Dodgers were going to leave, right? When the Dodgers say, oh, yeah, we'll make a decision by the end of spring training. And then they go, okay, we'll make a decision by the All-Star break. And then the All-Star break rolls around. They're like, yeah, we'll wait until late in the season. It's pretty clear the Dodgers are not going to retain this radio station. It's pretty sure that they're going to go somewhere else, which means I know that I'm going to be out of a job here very soon. And sure enough, I was. So 2011, you got an unofficial boycott of fans. You're on the front line of the firing squad as people are calling and complaining about what's happened to the Dodgers. I know that I'm going to be out of a job soon it was a fun year really fun year let me tell you was was one of those hats that you wore were you jamie mccourt's driver oh wow or 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 were you vladimir schmunt's personal assistant that one might have been my favorite story so the vladimir schmunt story he was a supposed metaphysicist or something like that living in boston who would channel his deepest most positive thoughts so the dodgers would perform well and 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 he got paid to do like two grand a week or something like ridiculous that and that. people wonder why the McCourts went bankrupt yeah so that was my worst year so for me you only got four to choose from i know no no there was one year it was it's an easy choice uh 2006 angels the angels are coming off 2005 where they're one doug eddings call away in my mind from going to the world series uh, for those that don't know explain it yep doug eddings is yep is behind the plate the Angels are playing their third game in three days in three cities, coming off a five-game NLDS victory over the Yankees uh, in 2005. Um, so game four was in New York, uh, game five was in Anaheim, and then game one of the ALCS was in Chicago. Uh, the Angels won game four in New York, forced game five, won game five to clinch, and won game one in Chicago. In Chicago. Game two is when this is happening. It's tied going into, I believe, the ninth inning um, or the eighth inning, late in the game. And the uh, Calvin Escobar throws his splitter. Jo- um, Josh Paul appears to catch it as A.J. Przinsky swings and misses. The umpire actually shows that he swung and missed. Przinsky, we all have heard about Przinsky, decides to run to first. Josh Paul never tagged him, never threw to first, tossed the ball out to the to the mound. The umpires decide that... You know, might have hit the dirt, um, award Przinsky first base, and I believe Joe Creedy then hits a two-run double to flip the script. They win. They go on to win the next four games, and they go to the World Series, whereas the Angels had all this momentum 
going forward. Anyway, so coming off of that, that they're probably truly this one call away from going to the World Series that year. Um, 06, they're, they're, they're making this transition from all these veterans that carried them from the 2002 World Series to the 2004 AOS title, to the 05 AOS title, and the ALCS, um, to this new batch of, of rookies that are coming in that are highly touted. Like every outlet is calling the Angels Farm System the best in baseball. Um, you know, you had guys like Brandon Wood, who the Angels wouldn't trade for Manny Ramirez. Uh, you had some some up and coming pitchers like Jared Weaver, who ended up having a, a phenomenal career, I, w- I would say. Um, and then you had guys like Jeff Mathis, who was touted as the uh, catcher. They let Benji Molina go to give Jeff Mathis this job, and he struggled unbelievably out of the gate. Uh, they moved Erstad, and, and his body was breaking down so that Casey Kochman could come in and play first. Um, they didn't have any third baseman because Dallas McPherson was going to come in and play third. So their their transition plan looked fine but it never worked. And you had this odd clubhouse mix, and they missed the playoffs, which was unexpected. And you had this odd clubhouse mix of the old guard of the veterans and then the new, that, that played definitely the, uh, the way, very tight to the vest, so it was hard to get stories, hard to get juicy quotes, anything like that. And then you had these rookies that were afraid to say anything, that were struggling, that you know couldn't quite make the jump that year. They couldn't say anything. It was a boring clubhouse. It was a bad team. And... Because the rest of the AL West was average that year, they were in it until maybe mid-September, even though they were... You said it was 06, right? Yeah. That's right, because the A's won the division. Yeah, struggling to be 500 and still in it. So I'm still traveling all year covering this this team. It was just boring and, and not fun, and you're watching this team struggle, and every single person, fan, my editors, I'm sure other you know writers, editors, are like, what's wrong with this team? What's going on? And you can't get the quote to cinch it, and all you can go is the eye test and be like, these rookies aren't ready and the veterans are too old. And, and here's a common thread here. Bud Black was the pitching coach that year. He learned, and Bud Black was the manager of my 08 season, he learned from Socha who they wouldn't allow their players to point fingers. This was, you know, we see all these blow-ups where the teams are awful and like in Philly and guys are pointing fingers at each other and fighting in the clubhouse and it gets out in the media. And these two teams had these great managers who really knew how to take care of their players even in the midst of all this crap. And so there's no and there's so many professionals in there that there's no pointing fingers. And while that is great for the franchise in general, it is so boring to cover. It's bad copy. Yeah, I mean I saw a couple of clubhouse fights and you know, not fight like fist fights, but definitely arguments, but Socha nipped those so quickly. Um, that they you know, there may be a uh, the lead to uh, your game notes. You know that, that they never blew up and never, you know, submarine a season. Bad copy, and and some of that stuff. A lot of that stuff happens behind closed doors. Um, you know, the, there's a story. Uh, I live in Seattle now. There was a story about the Mariners getting in a fight um, this year, and they ushered all of the reporters out, but there was a window where they could look through in the clubhouse and could see what happened. Um, and I think that's part of, like, a lot of that stuff happens when the clubhouse is shut down. It, it used to be when I was doing it 45 minutes before first pitch. I don't know if that's still the same. Uh, it's way different now. Now now access is get in 3.30. You have clubhouse until they hit the field at batting practice at 4.20, 4.25. That's your access until postgame. Okay, so it used to be 3.30 BP, and then the clubhouse was open for another half an hour or so. You had already gotten most of your notes um, and information but I would sit in the clubhouse in case something happened because right. you never know, right? And you don't want to get beat when the clubhouse is open by other guys that are just doing their job. So I would sit in there. But I think when the clubhouse closes, 
you know, is probably when a lot of this stuff goes down. Like these guys are smart enough to know not to do it in front of everybody. So the, one of the first days that I was uh, uh, um, working, not as a beat writer, but covering a local product who was trying to make the Dodgers, his name was Joe Thurston. I was working at the Vallejo Times Herald. Lefty reliever? Uh, no, uh, second baseman, left-handed hitting second baseman. I was close. <laughs> uh, you got left. <laughs> Um, and he got left behind in spring training because he couldn't win the job. <laughs> okay. You like that? Uh, here we go. See what you anyway, do. so uh, I go in to try to get this kid's story, and I have you know one of those paper press passes for the day, and I didn't know any of the rules. And I walk in, and it's after the clubhouse has been closed, but the attendant apparently let me in, and Andy Ashby rips me a new one, is yelling. He pops up out of his chair in San Francisco at AT&T, comes running over to me. What the pick a word are you doing in here you got to get out of here it's 45 minutes before the game the cub house is closed get out of here you so and so and i looked at joe and said i guess i'll talk to you later okay so that story reminds me of a uh, one of my favorite barry bond stories with barry bonds he was so difficult to get him going but then once he started you couldn't get him to shut up okay so this is cincinnati this was old riverfront stadium it was the right after I'd written the book about him, so this would have been 2002 after a 73 home run season. And I had gotten some quotes or whatever, and then at that point, you know, you kind of turned off the microphone and you've put the notepad away, but you're still just kind of chit-chatting about different things. And the next thing you know, we start talking about this and that, and, and at this point, I'm just kind of nodding, saying, uh-huh, I'm really not contributing to the conversation. Barry's just on a roll. We're talking about Japan. We're talking about, like, food in Japan. We're talking about everything that you can imagine. I remember looking at the clock multiple times going, okay, the clubhouse is closed. Like, I shouldn't be in here. We're past the 45-minute mark, right? Okay, now we're 40 minutes from first pitch, and I'm still in here. Now it's 35 minutes of first pitch. And you can see guys are in uniform, and people are looking at me. Now, nobody said anything because I was with Barry, right? And, again, it's not like I was interviewing him. It's not like I was, like, contributing to the conversation. Like, Barry was just on a roll. He had a captive audience. <laughs> Next thing I know, it's, like, 30 minutes before first pitch, and I'm still in there. And I was kind of like, um, Barry? I think I should be leaving about now. And he, like, looks at the clock, and he's like, oh, yeah, we'll finish this later. We never, finished, finished, okay. no, we never finished it later. But, I, but it was one of those times that it was really uncomfortable because the people are looking at me like, what is going on? But nobody kicked me out again because I was with Barry. I, I only have two experiences with him. I was there for the, the Hank Aaron tying homer in San Diego. Uh, but in spring training, I was doing a Dave Roberts feature because he was a San Diego guy. Um, was Bloom good at getting him going at all times? Uh, Barry Bloom is who you're referring to. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that Barry, uh, Barry Bloom was good at getting Barry Bonds going. I think that Bob Nightingale was good at getting Barry Bonds going. Um, but I think e- even for those two guys, you knew the first minute was going to be painful. The first five seconds was going to be the most awkward five seconds of your life. The next 15 seconds was going to be awkward. Like, like with every second, it got more awkward because it wasn't getting better, but then eventually, but then sometimes after like 30 to 45 seconds, that was it. You were done with Barry. And then sometimes it would be a minute or two. And then sometimes it would be four or five minutes. And a lot of his answers would just be shrug the shoulders and not say anything and just try to dismiss you and try to get people to go away. But then there would be a certain point in the interview, once Barry flipped the switch, then it was unbelievable. And so that's what you're trying to get to. And that was the challenge because... Barry had a way of just looking at you and just making you feel like, go away, leave me alone. But then once you got him going, it was incredible copy. And that was the biggest challenge 
Because let's face it, Barry could be intimidating. Barry could be very intimidating. And there were certain days when it didn't matter what you said, what you tried, you were not going to get anything out of him. And, and, and you had to recognize, okay, it's not happening today. I need to just put my you know, head between my legs and, and walk away. And then that's like the moment of shame, right? I tried to get Barry to talk. You know, he strung me along for a couple of minutes. Now I'm leaving, and you're, it's the total walk of shame. It's the reporter walk of shame. And then there's other days when, you know, and especially if you're trying to get a one-on-one with Barry, now everyone starts to, like, lean. They start to move in a little bit closer, right? Because no one wants to get beat. No one wants to interrupt your one-on-one. But you can just feel the presence of, like, more and more reporters, like, coming over, trying to get closer in case he says something. And then, oh, man, yeah, I could do an hour about <laughs> interviewing Barry. But that that just became really awkward. But then... Again, once you broke him down and you got him going, it was, it was amazing. Did you have something else you wanted to add about this? All right. So um, one of the things that teams will arrange, whether it's in spring training or the end of the season, they, they arrange like a beat writer dinner with like the manager or with the general manager. All of these are off the record, at least they're supposed to be off the record. Uh, so you sit around, you basically just eat and you tell stories and you talk. And, um, and I'm wondering if there's like, – I definitely want to know about what it's like watching Mike Sosha eat, number one. But I'm also just kind of curious if there's any like – awkward, funny moments when, uh, when it's supposed to be off the record and things just get different? So to answer the first part of your question about Mike Sosha, it is breathtaking. <laughs> to watch him eat. Yes. I'll give you an example, not from the annual spring training dinner we would have, but in spring training, he had probably a six-inch sub you know, after the game on his desk, and rather than taking the time, and I, I got to say, like, I respect Mike Sosha. I grew up a Dodgers fan. I loved him as a player. I really enjoyed covering him as a manager. Like, I'm not crapping on him. Like, I really like him. He's been nothing but good to me as a writer. And even when I've seen him a couple of times after my career as a writer, um, it's just he likes to eat. And he had this six-inch sub. And rather than taking the time to open the bread, put the mustard on the bread, close it back up, maybe even the knife to smooth it out. He treated it like you might treat a burrito with, like, salsa, (laughs) and he just, like, covered the outside, and that thing was gone in probably four bites, no joke. And a lot of times when when he would eat in the post-game spread, and this is, I think, the first time I noticed it, he would have, uh, instead of a napkin, he would have a towel, and not a washcloth, maybe a hand towel, but, like, a towel, Draped over his shoulder, and he would use it to wipe his his mouth. That was very courteous of him to wipe. Yeah, um, but I remember t- he tried to ask him a question, and he tried to answer, and he was choking down this six-inch sub. And I I remember thinking at the time, like, I think the mustard on the outside will help this go down <laughs> to kind of grease it. Anyway, uh, that was the example of eating. Uh, hanging out with Mike was awesome um, in, the, in the spring training manager dinner because everyone knew it was off the record and he would tell stories. We would tell stories. Sometimes he would ask us like pointed questions. You know, if, if there was uh, maybe a, a, a couple of guys going for that 25th spot, hey, you've seen all the games. You've been here. You've talked to guys. Like, what do you think? If you were a coach on my staff, um, and obviously like we're not going to change his mind on anything, but the fact that he respected us enough and our knowledge to provide input and at least have the conversation with him rather than just sitting there and having Mike Sosha tell stories, which I can tell you one, which is pretty amazing. Sure. Please Um, do. But it it was fun. You know, we'd have a few drinks. Um, and when he would order, he would order food for the table and he had this mind like this just amazing mind of exactly what was coming. And he would do it like, yeah, we need uh, six shrimp cocktails and we need 
you know, four things of mozzarella sticks, not four mozzarella sticks, like four orders of mozzarella sticks. And we need uh, a couple of prosciutto platters, and the, and the waiters would, like, come and bring it. And we're all, you know, there's four or five of us, and, and Mike and then Tim Mead, who's the VP of communications, one of the all-time greatest human beings you'll ever meet. Great dude. All-time. All-time. Um, having dinner and just having a good conversation, having fun. And, you know, we're stuffed before we even ordered our meal. And Mike remembered, he's like, I think uh, we're missing a couple more shrimp cocktails. Like, he knew exactly how many he had ordered after he'd ordered, like, dozens of appetizers. And then one time I order, make it up, pasta, you know, fettuccine alfredo. That's not, but something like that. And he goes, no, 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 no. You do not want that. He, he go, looks at the, the waiter and he goes, he wants spaghetti with one giant meatball. And I can't say no to an Italian man ordering me Italian food. Um, one of the stories that, that um, Mike told that is one of my all-time favorite stories ever is when he was early in his career with the Dodgers. I don't know if he was a rookie, if he was still in the minors, or if it was second year, but early on enough. And they wanted to keep his weight in check uh, in, in spring training in Vero Beach. And every day after working the fields, and playing the games. And remember, he was a catcher, so he's got to do all the bullpens, too. Like, catchers, I think, in spring training have the hardest of anybody. Um, after all of that, they wanted him to get on a stationary bike and ride a set amount of miles each day. Um, and, and they would come in, they had it on a pedometer, and they would see, and they're like, okay. And the weight wasn't coming off. And so one day, Lasorda stays around, and... Tommy Lasorda decides to check in on Mike, unbeknownst to Mike Sosha. Now, this is at Vero Beach where the dorms, you basically are staying in dorms, right? At Dodger Town, which yep. is totally different than what they do now. Correct, yeah. So, you know, they would have Sosha, you know, stay behind to bike, and I think everyone else went back to their dorms, right? The, the was mostly empty. But Tommy's, like, noticing, like, he's not losing the weight he should be. And so Tommy comes into the room, and rather than Sosha on the bike... There is a, a Dominican 17-year-old clubby riding the bike, and Sosha's laying on a couch with a large pizza on, a, on him, eating pizza. So every day, this poor clubby is riding the bike to get the miles for Mike Sosha. And, and Sosha's telling the story about himself. Yes. And how Tommy busted in, and he got in so much trouble because of it. It's one of my all-time favorite stories. What makes it great is that Sosha tells it about himself. How much did that clubby like get tipped at the end of the year? <laughs> well, remember it's like maybe eighty one, you know, yeah, nineteen eighty. Is... So so you know, and, and he's young, he's seventeen, he's from a foreign country, like so may I don't know, twenty bucks, like make it up, but not as much as you'd think. Right. right? Totally. And and just the the image of Mike laying on the couch with a large pizza every day because he's dead tired from Doing all these bullpens, the games, the workouts that catchers have, like, I get it. But, like, eating, just housing a pizza and having another kid ride the stationary bike to get the miles, like, I can totally picture it. That's pretty incredible. I mean, like, the, the telling on himself is the is by far the best part of that. Yeah. Like, that's amazing because you don't get a whole lot of that. I've only had one manager dinner really in my 12 years. Bud Black wouldn't do that? Uh, I think we always tried to do it. it. Maybe there was one or two, but sometimes it would happen in my break when I was at home. But I, I can only remember one. It was with Rick Renneria, who in his manager sessions is very minimal on details. He just doesn't get into a lot of stuff. So it was kind of cool to go to dinner with him. We went, it was uh, three years ago, and we were in, um, we went to Scottsdale, and we went out and had a couple margaritas, and his wife was there. Just some random stuff that we didn't know about him. Um, I've heard some really cool stories because he is very much 
behind the scenes. There's this, Bud Black tells this story about how they call him Ricky Loco because he'll go and he's like, we're going out tonight. We're doing this. And this guy is so, I mean, I, I, I love him. He's a, one of the best human beings. And his manager sessions are boring. So I would love to have met this, you know, Ricky Loco. And I tried to bring it up with him one time. And he laughed at me. And he was like, no, you're not getting that. So we get him at dinner one night. And it was just kind of cool to see him button down a little bit. And he told us, like, you know, when he was out of baseball and he was trying to support his family, he was a carpenter for a couple of years. Like, this is the mid-'90s after his baseball career has ended. And he's not sure he wants to go into coaching because his kids are still young. And so he's, like, talking about building houses and being an electrician and stuff like that and how he almost cut off his finger one time. And that's how he decided to get back into coaching because he'd had a, a series of injuries around these construction jobs. And he was like, yeah, this is done. I'm done with this. Like, I almost lost my finger. And he goes back into it. And so it was more that. I mean, it wasn't anything like, like I said, I've only had one. Um, and we didn't get to the point where we got any old stories. He, uh, he did, did tell us that, you know, he was a first-round pick in 1980, I want to say. And um, he didn't realize that he got a signing bonus, and he and his wife had just gotten married, and he's 18. They didn't realize that the this, uh, club was going to pay for his plane ticket to spring training. And so he and his wife drive from Los Angeles all the way, because like, where were the Pirates? Uh, somewhere in Florida. Maybe they're Bradenton, Bradenton now. I don't know if they still were then, but somewhere there. So they drive all the way across the United States, <laughs> and they get there. And they're like, oh, here's your money for your plane ticket to reimburse you for your, What are you talking about? And he's like, they spent like six days. And they were like staying in these like sketchy motels on the way across the United States. Did it have bulletproof glass on it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there was any bulletproof glass. But, I mean, it's so funny to hear like an 18-year-old kid's perception. Because like, it's all a learning process for all these guys. And it's the same thing with us a little bit where you have to learn the daily routines of things. Like going in and getting yelled at by because you have no idea that you're violating clubhouse rules until you've been there and that first couple days is always like so exhausting and scary because you have to learn it all over again like this was my third team this year and you have to learn the routine of the new team and it's really easy it's not that big of a deal but the first two weeks meeting new players and starting over yet again like i was going to bed every night and falling asleep easily and i don't fall asleep easy at all um it's kind of funny. So I can like you can relate to an eighteen year old kid that drives across the United States <laughs> right? his, his first spring training and doesn't know that the team was gonna fly him. All right, I got two. Uh, first one would have been when I covered the Giants, so I know it wasn't the first year, so it was either two thousand one, two thousand two, or two thousand three. And Brian Sabian basically sat at one end of the table and Ned Coletti sat at the other end of the table. Ned was the assistant GM. Brian was the uh, GM then. And, uh, and I was kind of in the middle. So I want to say there's probably like uh, six to eight writers. And Sabian is telling George Steinbrenner stories at one end of the table. And Ned Coletti is telling Harry Carey stories at the other end of the table. And, uh, and both, I think it's safe, to, it's, it's okay to say this. Brian and Ned, they both had like one or two pops in them. So they're feeling good and they've got a captive audience. And, you know, that, that's the whole point of like these spring training sessions, right? Where you just kind of like relax and you can, um, and again, it's all off the record. And I don't even know if I remember like the details of a lot of the stories, but just, I remember just sitting in the middle and just thinking, okay, with one ear, I'm hearing these hilarious George Steinbrenner stories. And with the other ear, I'm hearing like these hilarious Harry Carey stories. And so I'm kind of like leaning one direction, leaning the other way to see, because I don't want to miss out on either one of those. So that one was cool. And then there was an awkward one. I'm not going to say the reporter's name, but, um, 
It was with the Oakland A's and the former one of the former A's owners, uh, Ken, not not Ken Shot, Steve Shot. Steve Shot comes and uh, takes everyone out, and it's a very fancy meal at some steakhouse, and people are probably uh, overserved. And one of the reporters and and Steve Shot like started screaming at each other, and it was over like how Ken Baca was treated as the manager. Like they started screaming at each other, and uh, said reporter got up and left and did not return. Just like kind of got up to. To, like, go to the bathroom or something like that and basically never returned. And so things got pretty awkward. Fortunately, uh, we all got home safe with taxis. This was before Uber and Lyft. We got home safe. And I remember seeing um, Steve shot the next day. And I was not involved in this other than, like, being kind of in the middle and hearing the screaming going back and forth. And uh, and, and Steve shot said something like, uh, last night was fun, huh? I was like... Yeah, it was definitely a memorable night. And he's like, he's like, no, that's okay. I'm glad that we kind of got it out there. You know, sometimes you got to really let people know where you stand. And I was like, all right, well, that's cool. He's not going to hold a grudge or anything. But I remember thinking, I don't know if we're ever going to do one of these dinners again with Steve Shot based on what just happened tonight. Yeah, I, the the dinners are kind of what helps make it, you know, uh, bearable. You know, because you have that opportunity. And I'm not talking about like a fancy food. You know, or, or the chance to have a few drinks on the owner's tab. It's it's kind of breaking down the walls that are naturally built between media, players, manager, and really just getting the opportunity to show that you're a person and they are too, you know, and it, that, that's, that's what I enjoy about them. So, Dan, Matt and I don't do this in the, in the major leagues. Matt's totally out of, uh, out of uh, journalism now, but... Th- do other teams still do this, or is that like a dying breed, the whole go out with the manager or go out with the GM or go out with the owner for dinner and spring training? I think it, it's a little bit hit and miss. I think that it's starting to go away a little bit. And that is unfortunate because it is really cool when they can see that you're just a regular person. And I, I told you guys that story earlier today about how uh, Kevin Towers, rest in peace, went up to the, the suite with like 12 of us at the GM meetings one night and was telling stories and got to hear us tell stories and we're all drinking beers, and all of a sudden it's like 3.30 in the morning. And, and it was amazing. It was just a great experience because this guy who, you know, he was always a great people person. I mean, he's an amazing people person. So he always, he liked reporters. He liked getting down and dirty and drinking a few beers and talking. Like, he's the guy that would make trades on cocktail napkins, that kind of stuff. You know, the stuff we used to hear about, nothing that... Baseball's gone so far away from that. For Ted Williams. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but it was like he knew. He got to see these guys and got to see them just letting loose and having a good time. And, you know, I mean, I guarantee you that if someone wanted to go up and talk to him from that point on and he recognized you from that, you were in good. And that, that kind of stuff helps. It really is, like Matt was saying, breaking down barriers because there is such this – you're the media. You're going to report on our faults. You're going to report on every little detail of our days. And and are you really a human in there? Or are you sort of this robot that's programmed to do this stuff? And the humanity needs to be there because it's you're around people 162 games. Obviously, no reporters around for 162, but you're around for about 120 days of season. Plus, you're around for 40 in spring training or so. I mean, you're with those guys almost half the year, and and stuff needs to be there needs to be that like uh that side where people know you can just walk up and bs with them and they don't need to be on their tiptoes at all times around you because that's how you foster relationships and get guys comfortable with you and then you get the good the good stories to report about because they're comfortable talking to you and then all of a sudden like Barry Bonds you when you get him going 
That's the best part of our job because that's where some of the best stories come from. All right, so that's going to go. Go ahead, Matt. You got some. Uh, no, I was just going to double down on that and say, you know, or if you saw players out at a bar, right? You're in. You're in the same city. You're kind of staying not at the same, well, at least for me, not at the same hotel. Let's but, hope not. Yeah, but but nearby enough. You see them, and you'd have a drink or two, and everything was like off the record, right? It was the opportunity to show, oh well, yeah, okay, this guy drinks the same beer as I do, or you know, he's got a wife or family at home. And it's like you're not that much different, except that they can throw a ball 95 miles an hour, and you can't. Okay, so I wanted to go into stories behind stories of either how you got a scoop or how you missed a story. And so I'm going to go first with a couple while you guys rack your brains about what you can and can't tell about how you got a story or how you missed out on a story. Um, So one I've got is when Eric Burns was traded from the A's to the Rockies. And it it happened during the All-Star break. And it's the third and final day before the All-Star break. The A's have an optional workout. And I remember I need to file some type of, like, look-ahead preview story toward this, you know, coming out of the All-Star break. And I remember thinking, like, I got no quotes. I have got nothing. So, like, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I, I, I guess you could say I didn't do a very good job going into the All-Star break of gathering enough quotes that I had something. And the A's have an optional workout. And so I go out to the ballpark, and Eric Burns is there, and a couple of other people are there. And, uh, and I see Billy Bean, and I see David Forrest, and I see Ken Baca, and a number of, like, just, you know, you can just tell that, like, something's going on, right? And then Burns is up in the clubhouse, and then, like, he's being taken into, like, a back room or whatever. And I was the only reporter who showed up, and because I was there, it's how I learned that Eric Burns had been traded, right? Because he was getting the news, and so I was able to get, like, quotes from Burns. I remember driving back across the Bay Bridge to get home to file. And I want to say that like ESPN news or what some ESPN had already like scheduled to have me come on to talk about the A's and angels coming out of the all-star break and who's going to win the division. And the A's had already made one trade that had been announced. And so they had me come on to talk about that. Um, That was where they got Jay Payton in a trade from who did Payton was very uh, from the Red Sox. And they said, you know, so how does Jay Payton fit in the A's outfield? And I said, well, there's actually another trade that's, that's going to be announced very soon, that Eric Burns is going to the Rockies. And I remember Bill Pito was the host, and he just smiled, and he said, we bring Josh on, and he breaks some news for us. And I remember thinking, I look so cool right now, but really I just lucked out because I had nothing. I needed quotes. I needed something for the, for the next day's paper. And I just happened to be there when Eric Burns got traded and happened to be there to get the story. It's a very similar experience. Chris Sale, when he got his uh, team-friendly contract a couple years ago, um, there had been talk that he was going to – there were extension talks going on during spring training. And I sort of am a restless person in, in the uh, media room. I don't like to sit very long, especially if I'm not writing. So I get up and wander around a little bit, and I'm just kind of walking outside of the clubhouse in the hall on the way to the field, and I see this really kind of weird exchange going on. And, and Rick Hahn, the GM – is down at the other end, uh, just beyond the clubhouse door, and Chris Sale's out in the hallway, and uh, they shake hands. And I'm like, well, that's that's kind of strange just because, you know, you don't do that on a daily basis with people you see on a daily basis. Maybe when you're saying bye, you maybe fist pump, uh, that kind of thing. But here they have this awkward handshake in the hall, and this is a public area for everybody to be in. Um, and then I hear Sales say as I'm walking by, and I'm pretending not to pay attention, but I am totally like looking out of the corner of my eye, walking by, and, and I'm sure they know it. But Sales says, "Well, is Jerry going to be here then?" And and Jerry Reinsdorf is the owner, and I'm like, "No way! This is really weird." 
So what I did was I kept it quiet to myself. I did not let anybody know. And we had a day off the next day. Um, and that's actually when Sale went to the doctor to get his MRI. Because obviously when you sign a guy to an extension, they give you a full MRI and all that stuff just to make sure your health is intact and stuff like that. So I knew if I waited until our access was done to publish this story, then nobody else was going to have it. Now, this was a total calculated risk, but the White Sox do not like giving that kind of stuff away. So I, I knew if I could just hang for a couple hours. What I did was I went back in the clubhouse, and I went up to sale, and I was like, hey, man, uh, what's going on with your extension talks? Is there anything done there? He's like, uh, no, you know, not really. There's nothing I can really talk about. And he didn't blow me off. Like, he didn't really deny it necessarily he just wouldn't give me anything on it but i figured out enough put two and two together and i said um chris is close to signing an extension now here's the thing i tried to text kenny williams i tried to text rick hahn about it and uh i i want to say rick hahn's text back to me was you're going on a fishing expedition and i'm not going with you and and, <laughs> and so, like, I, I just had to say something like uh, talks have – I can't remember how I reported it, but I basically made it look like it was very close to happening. And, of course, like two days later it comes out and, like, I think Bruce Levine got the – when it was finally done and, and the money for it. But it was so lucky because all I was doing was walking in the hall, being my normal restless self, and I just happened upon this really strange exchange – and I, you know, I mean, I wonder if they've changed their protocol for it. Like, have the guy go upstairs <laughs> instead to the GM's office instead. So I've got a spring training contract extension story, too, that's somewhat similar. Um, <clears throat> me and a bunch of the writers go in to talk to Billy Bean. He's just sitting at his desk in spring training. Uh, this was when they were in Phoenix at um, Phoenix Muni. And, uh, and so he's behind the desk, and everyone is sort of in front, and I'm sort of at the side. And, uh, you know, people are asking him various questions about a number of different topics. And Eric Chavez's uh, contract extension, we all knew that they were kind of working on something. And somebody asked Billy a question. I don't really care about it because I know that that person's just doing a feature story and I'm not going to, like, you know, steal their quote or anything. So I'm kind of tuning out. And so I'm just kind of being curious. I'm looking around like, okay, what's Billy got on his desk these days? What does he have, you know, on the walls these days? Billy's always a very interesting person who's always reading lots of things, most of which have nothing to do with baseball. So I'm scanning his desk, and then all of a sudden I see on a yellow pad, I see these years and I see numbers, and so I'm doing a double take, and I'm trying to be really sly and not make it obvious that I'm writing this down. But he had the year-to-year totals for Eric Chavez's contract <laughs> extension written on this yellow pad, right? So, you know, when I'm sitting there thinking, okay, does anybody else see this? Does Billy realize that I see this? Does anybody else realize what I'm doing? Can I get this information in a, in a, in a very stealth way so that I can write this down? So all of a sudden I start really paying attention to what Billy's saying about this other topic as I'm trying to, like, write these numbers down. So now what do you do, right? You see numbers, but that's, you can't go with that, right? Why not? Because you don't know if that's just a option, you know, if that's like what they're thinking, if that's internal, you don't know if that's the final numbers. Could you double back? So that's what I did. Yeah. So I double back to Billy. And at first, of course, he's not happy at all. And the first thing he says, well, what are you doing looking at my desk and cheating off me or whatever, you know? And I'm like, Billy, you had it right there. And he's like, well, how do you know it wasn't a test? And, and I basically said, that's why I'm here, right? I'm not going to run it like this. That's why I'm asking. And he's like, well... You know, you're just going to have to find out. And I remember thinking, I'm pretty sure that these are like the exact numbers. 
but I can't, like, it's not enough, right? So then I go to the clubhouse to talk to Eric to see if Eric knows. And so I show him the numbers. And Eric's no filter, right? He's going to tell you everything. Like, he doesn't know how to lie, which is why Eric was so much fun to cover and just such a, like, a good dude. And so I show him the numbers, and he looks at me like, really? That's what I'm going to get? Those are my numbers, <laughs> right? Like, he couldn't believe that that was going to be his numbers. And he's like, is those really the numbers? I'm like, I don't know. That's what I'm trying to confirm for you. He's like, well, why don't you confirm it for me? So it's like this back and forth thing about whether or not, like, the numbers are real. And then all of a sudden, of course, here comes Billy Bean walking around the corner as we're, like, having this discussion. And it was totally like the principal just walked in on you as you're, like, doing something that you should not be doing. And so, like, Billy looks at me and looks at Eric, and, like, none of us can keep a, a straight poker face at all. And I'm just going, oh, my goodness. Like, this is, this is hysterical. But at the same time, this could be really cool if I get this story. But ultimately, like, I still didn't feel like I had it. Like, to me, that wasn't enough. Like, Eric didn't know. Billy was coy about it. Eric's agent wasn't like confirming it. And so as it turned out, like, I, honestly, I didn't end up going with it. Cause I felt like, you know, I, I probably ended up reporting something, something similar to what you said, Dan earlier about, you know, the A's and Eric are close or whatever. There's been exchange of numbers or something like that. Um, but I just felt like it wasn't enough because if one of those numbers was off, then, then it blows my credibility, right. That I have this, not to mention there was still the ethical side of, it's not like I was rummaging through Billy Bean's desk. It's not like I was in there when I was not supposed to be in there. But still, he had him written on this yellow pad, and it was pretty much staring right at me as I'm interviewing him along with the other scribes. Isn't this like a scene from The Departed? Like, doesn't it? <laughs> it's a arrest. Uh, I don't have anything around contract extensions, uh, nothing major around trades. I have a couple things that I chased. You know, I think like... Uh, one thing actually that came to mind when I was uh, texting with Dan before we all got together, um, you know, Dan was trying, as he mentioned earlier, trying to figure out who the Twins' next manager was going to be, and your story, Josh, kind of brought that back up into my mind along with Dan. So hopefully it melds together the way it's trying to in my mind. Uh, Sosha on his desk would have a whole calendar, uh, paper, uh, just like eight and a half by eleven, printed out of each month, and in pencil he would write out the starting rotation very small but you know he would have it there and you know it's not a huge thing but you know some guys one year and i i forget which year uh got hurt and then there was this this rookie named nick Aidenhart, uh r.i.p um who was up and coming with the angels and was supposed to be the next big thing and there was just a couple of blank spots or you know in the middle and i'm like i wonder what's going on and so uh i call the local hotel from the press box and I asked for uh, Nick Aidenhart, and they send me up to his room. And so I'm on the phone with the kid, and uh, and he never confirms that he's pitching tomorrow night for his major league debut. Um, but the fact that he's in the room across the street. That he's not in the minor leagues. That he's not in Salt Lake where the AAA team was, was enough. Um, and, and so well, I, I had that. That must have been really close before he I, passed away, right? It was, because uh, he had just made yeah, his it was debut. the year before. Okay. Um, and then the next year, I think '09 is when he passed away, and I was off the beat, so it must have been '08. Wow! Uh, I got some next level. Um, pardon me, shit. Uh, th this is amazing. So Matt's telling this story because the other night, when I was trying to track down the Twins candidate, um, I called the hotel to see who it was, and we got through to one of the names, and it was like, oh my god, this is gonna be the guy. Well, I talked to somebody else in the organization the next day. And he said, uh, do you think that was a plant? And I'm like, no, that's, that's just crazy. That is absolute crazy talk. And he's like, actually, no, because 
this one other guy was trying to figure out what was going on, and I talked to him, and he asked about the other candidate, and he got through to their room. So the twins potentially put out all three of their candidates' names at the hotel. We didn't try the third one, but <laughs> but two people got the same idea, and somehow this one guy was in the middle and heard from two of us that we thought it was the other guy because we got through to the room, and I'm just sitting there going, Wow, my mind is blown. Like I was like I was stunned when I heard this story yesterday. And, and they're all, not using aliases; no. they're using their real names. Right, and players obviously. By the way, the, that would be another good topic. Some of the best aliases you've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, these guys, they weren't using aliases, and they were using real names. And and I certainly got through to the the coach that I thought was going to get the job. And that's partly why I wrote this thousand-word story, <laughs> and it was totally wrong. That was not published, though. It was not. No, you... right, right, right. We, we had it ready to go for when we got it confirmed. And, you know, we were trying to get it confirmed, but it just, you know, there were so many things at play. I knew I wasn't going to get it confirmed, most likely. And, uh, man, do I'm you, glad. You, do you ever save a story like that for posterity later? I, I have it on my computer. I don't know that I will... Really track it down. I was, you know, what's funny is I was really pleased with it because the quotes. <laughs> I, I'll just go ahead and say who it was. Like it was Brandon Hyde, um, who I thought was getting it at one point. He's the Cubs bench coach. There were some really cool parts. The guy went to. I'm from uh, Runner Park, which is Sonoma County. So, so was Brandon Hyde in the hotel room, or had the twins sent up the twins? All we three. Believe names. The, we it. believe the twins just set up the names because it doesn't sound like he was there. Wouldn't that suck if he's there and then they're like, no, it's not here. <laughs> well, and, and, and actually, the reason why I know he wasn't there was because um, the twins said yesterday that they were down in Florida and picked up Rocco Baldelli on the private plane, and so there was like a, a team of them down there and flew him back up. So maybe what happened is they set up all three names at the hotel in case somebody was checking in, and whatever way they decide to go, that person had a room. But um, I thought it was Hyde, and, and Hyde is, I'm from Roner Park, Sonoma County. Hyde's from uh, a rival high school of mine, like 10 miles away, Montgomery High School. So we had a really cool conversation the day before, just going over, like just kind of meeting and greeting each other. And it was like a five-minute conversation, realizing the same people that we knew. And it was, it was really cool. And, so that leads, I, I go further down the road, and I talk to a couple Cubs people and get some amazing quotes from uh, people within the organization about how good of a guy this would be. Now, at that point, I had no idea it was going to be him. That phone call to the hotel was way later than that. Um, but I was just kind of excited because Hyde was maybe getting this job, and this Sonoma County guy was going to be the manager of the Twins 2,000 miles away. Here are two Sonoma County guys there, and it was kind of a cool idea, um, and then it didn't happen, but... Like, that story, I, I was so pleased with it. Like, I don't use the word sing about a, <laughs> that copy sings, but I just liked how it, the transitions and the quotes, like, because when you have good quotes, that really is what makes the story. It's not your words. And sure, there's some cool stuff you can do, but it's always the people and them talking. Like, I had some great quotes from people, and it was really depressing not to be able to use that story. Uh, and for a while, I kept my game story about, the Giants winning Game Six of the 2002 World Series and winning oh. their first World Series championship in San Francisco. Why did I go there right now. I, do you so, want me in the fetal position? <laughs> so I had that story written, and then once Scott Spezio hit the three-run home run, I realized I better start writing a second version of the story just in case. And indeed, that's the story that ended up getting published since the Angels won the game. And I held on to that story of the Giants winning the World Series for a long time. And then when that computer died, like that story and like all the others died with it and uh but it was kind of cool to to look back on that story 
that did not publish. You know what's funny is that takes me back because when you first knew me, you knew me as fanboy Dan. Yes. I was not. You're pretty I much was, still fanboy in some ways. I, I, I'm like, if it's the Warriors, sure, I don't care. But uh, but like back then, it was like I was at San Diego State. I had no reason to like not be a fan. So I was super. I ran into Sush at uh, Dodger Stadium, going up the. He was going up the escalator or down the escalator to do interviews, and we were going up. I remember running. We did an interview when because uh, both of us went to San Diego State. He got us uh, press passes to the second day of the season, and we went and did a book story on the Barry Bonds book. And like me and uh, my assistant sports editor Mike Klitzing interviewing from the stands. But we were both fanboys, like sitting in the press box, and we did a good job keeping it under wraps because we were pretty professional. But at the same time, we were so like tickled like to be at AT and T Park for you know the second game of the year and. That was only fifteen. That was sixteen years ago, but uh, yeah, lots changed. Lots changed. Uh, I've got uh, I've got the story that I wish that I had written that I had pursued better. I got like kind. Of, I don't know if it was like the scoop that got away, but it was after the two thousand four season and lots of rumors that Billy Bean is going to trade um, between Tim Hudson, Mark Mulder, and Barry Zito. That he's going to trade one of these guys. That they can't keep everybody together, and uh, the Tim Hudson ends up getting traded. And uh, so when you guys were on a conference call, would you guys, were you guys like fast enough typers where you could type up like quotes? Yeah, I was. Were you no, able to do that? I suck. Okay. All right. So I was pretty good at being able to type up, you know, so I'm on the conference call and I'm just typing away instead of taking notes. I'm, I'm typing it up because I think I'm faster at typing. So I file my story and uh, the next day I'm talking to my sports editor about, okay, we need to do a follow-up story, right? Tim Hudson's been traded. So I'm going back through like the quotes that I have to see like what I didn't use and and what else? And we're kind of kicking around like what story uh, to do on the follow-up. And I look back at the quotes from Billy, and at one point he said something like, "When you're talking about trading these guys, something else." And I remember just looking and seeing, like, "Wait a minute!" He said guys. He said multiple. He said plural. Whereas we always just thought he was going to trade one. We'd never in our wildest dreams did we think that he was going to, or nightmares if you're an Ace fan, did you think that he was going to trade two of them? And I remember just thinking. Did I type this wrong? Was that just a Freudian slip on his part? Was it talking, you know, was he thinking about which one of these guys he's going to trade? I, I, I just never truly thought that he was going to trade two of those three. And so I remember talking to my sports editor, and we decided to do just a follow-up piece about who are the prospects that the A's are getting. And so that ended up being like the next day follow-up story. And then sure enough, the day after that, he trades Mark Mulder to the Cardinals. And I remember thinking like, gosh. I should have followed up on that, right? I should have. Now, even if I had followed up, what are you going to do? The Ace have so few people in their organization, right? It's Billy and it's David Force, and that's pretty much it. So you try one or both of them, and they probably wouldn't have said anything anyways. But you never know. Maybe they would have tipped you off in some way. Or maybe I could have found it somewhere else. And the other part that I remember being so mad about, it was close to Christmas, and, like, my family wants me to go up into, like, the mountains of Northern California where there's, like, no cell phone service. It's, like, dial up on AOLs, like, the only way to get any information. So, number one... I'm furious at myself that I did not follow up on this potential little clue that I had. And now I'm stuck in the remote mountains of Northern California trying to file the story about Mark Mulder getting traded. Now the A's have traded two of their three aces in a 72-hour stretch. Like, what is going on in this organization? They just missed out on the playoffs. Giambi's gone. Tahat is gone. Johnny Damon's gone. Jason Isringhausen's gone. And now Hudson's gone and Mulder's gone. And I'm, like... I feel like I got my hands tied behind my back and trying to like file this story and write this story properly. So the lesson of this story is 
follow up on your instinct and don't go to the remote mountains whenever you're trying to make sure that you have cell phone service and internet service wherever you go when you're trying to chase a story. Or South Carolina the day after the manager gets hired. <laughs> right. So. You got anything to add to that? No. No? I, I mean, I can talk about a story that never came to fruition. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, what we're doing. We're talking about our biggest failures because I don't want to just constantly pat ourselves on the back about, oh, I got this story. Aren't I such a great reporter? You also got to be humble. Well, so uh, the Angels gave a fairly large contract to Gary Matthews Jr. And in his first spring training came out that he had ordered some, you know, uh, what do they call it these days? HEH, performance enhancing drugs. Yeah, performance enhancing drugs. I was thinking IEDs, and that's wrong. That's a war term. <laughs> um, anyway. And it comes out that he had ordered these, and it ticked Artie Moreno, the owner of the Angels, off so much uh, that he was trying to void the contract. And, uh, you know, Gary Matthews played that entire year as the Angels center fielder. Um, but in the offseason, they signed Torrey Hunter. And so all the questions are, who's going to play center field? You're paying both of these guys a ton of money. Um and obviously, if Torrey Hunter's available and you have the opportunity, you're going to sign him. He's an all-star. He's a great player. Um, but you had already supposedly taken care of your center field situation. I think already wanted to get Torrey and was still angry at Gary Matthews Jr. Um, so the Angels in the offseason are hosting a charity golf event in some posh country club in uh, Orange County. And... So I drive out there knowing that Gary Matthews Jr. is on the ticket. And no one's talked to him. And a lot of us had good relationships with Gary. He was, he's a good guy. Um, you know, was very honest in how he talked about things, except for that. Um, uh, it, the, the PED is not this part. Um, and so he wouldn't return anybody's calls or texts in the offseason. You know, uh, the Angels have now signed another center fielder. Um, but he was going to be at this charity golf event. So I drive out there, and I'm in the parking lot. And at that time, I knew all the cars that the other uh, beat riders were driving, and none of them were like Mercedes or BMWs. So it was pretty easy in that parking lot to pick out if they were there or not. They weren't. Uh, my Toyota truck was the only uh, non-Range <laughs> Rover. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, sweet, I'm going to get this. Uh, and it's a cloudy day, like, you know, the marine layer's in. Um, and I'm like, they're still going to play golf. So I walk into the lobby. I'm like, I'm here for the Angels golf event, not to play. I'm media. Can I just hang out here and see who comes through? All of a sudden, you know, and I'm there early knowing people have to show up. All of a sudden, you know, uh, 7.30 a.m., 8 o'clock, it starts raining, and they cancel the thing. And I never got the chance to have the scoop of what Gary Matthews, or even that he said, I'm not talking about it until spring training. Nobody else would have had it, never had that. So in spring training comes along, and Matthew's uh, locker in the clubhouse is right next to the door that you just stand in front of. Um, and I think that's probably why we had good relationships is because you, you're standing there, and he's you know in his locker, and you just chit-chat. It's to, you know, everyone knows it's just chit-chat. It's off the record, kind of like you with Barry Bonds. Um, so I guess I'm like holding resentment that, this, <laughs> right. that the, ra- the one day it rains in Southern California, it washed out this uh, golf tournament. And so Gary's like, all right, you know, hey, guys, like, I'm here. Like, let's talk. Uh, and instead of, like, the whole chit-chat, how's your off-season, you know, how's – I'm like, what do you think of the Torrey Hunter signing? <laughs> and he's like, oh, we're going there right off the bat, huh? Okay. <laughs> and he didn't give us anything juicy. <laughs> do you think you would have you gotten anything juicy from him at that golf tournament, or do you think you would have gotten what are you doing at this golf tournament? Honestly, 
I don't know. I think probably not. Um, but I at least would have had the story that he, you know, said something or refused to comment and something the other guys didn't. And I think, as we all know, as beat writers, whether you love the guys that you're competing with or you hate them, um, there is that amount of, I still want to beat you because I'm writing for, you know, my job is for this outlet. It's not to be necessarily great friends with my competition. Uh, I was very fortunate that the guys I was on the beat with were very cool. Uh, I'm still friends with a, a few of them to this day. Um, this is, you know, 10 years after I was done. Um, but we all wanted to uh, beat each other, you know, because that's that was the reason you got into being a, a writer, right, is to break news. Um, so even if he had not said anything, I would have had something that nobody else did, and I ended up never filing a story like, hey, I, you know, I couldn't write. Like, I was here, and it <laughs> rained. <laughs> Two, two things there. Uh, a, you just wanted credit. You just wanted your bosses to know you were there. You wanted a quote just to show the hustle. So here's why. Because uh, the way that it Did worked out. you put out, in an expense report for this? I might have for mileage. Okay. But the way that it worked out at the, at the Riverside Press Enterprise where I was is that all the writers, uh, unless you were like an executive editor, everybody was on uh, hourly pay and not salary. So a lot of... Um, I don't know if it's still like this, but a lot of beat writers, because of the grind of the baseball season, you're starting in mid-February, and if your team's good, you're going till mid-October. And whether you're covering a game or not, you're still on. And then you have winter meetings, trades, all that stuff that happens. Um, but a lot of times in the off-season, these writers would have off days. Like, you you basically have um, paid vacation without using vacation days, right? Um, and that's where you recharge your batteries, get ready for the next year, all that stuff. Uh, we didn't have that. So... I would I would burn a few vacation days or take a couple of like overtime days and take like a week off after the season. But then I'd start co- covering college football, high school football, college basketball, um, you know, writing feature stories, things like that. Because I still needed to get my hourly pay. I needed my money. Um, so that was part of it too. Like I'm going to go chase this not only as the beat writer, but I need to put in eight hours today. Um, you know, uh, and so I told my editor, and he's like, "Man, I love your instincts. Like, way to go do it." And I think I worked like four hours. He goes, we'll, we'll give you credit for the eight because if you had covered a golf tournament, you're going to be out there for yeah. sure. So, um, so that, so it wasn't getting credit, Dan, it was getting a paycheck. <laughs> All right. We're going to somewhat start to uh, wrap this up, but I do want to get, since we've talked about, uh, earlier, our humble beginnings in the industry for Matt, your, uh, your departure from the industry. When was the sign that you realized it's time to, you mentioned this was my dream job. I always wanted to cover, Major League Baseball, as a beat writer, when did you know it was time to leave? Probably when I thought I was 25 years old and I reached my dream job. <laughs> What's now what? next? Yeah, now what? Um, a couple of things uh, overall. Uh, I, I guess you know I was pretty fortunate to see the writing on the wall maybe earlier than some that newspapers were, were struggling in the years that I was there. Um, and I worked in newspapers from the, the year I graduated college until I left in 2008. So the 05 to 08 were the four years I covered the Angels. Um, and, and I think in 07, like there was two things. I got married in 07, and at the end of 2007, I got my Marriott like end-of-year statement, and it showed that I had stayed 185 nights. Whoa, wait, how? In spring training. Oh, okay. So 185 nights. I don't think I took a road trip off that year. Um and so you, I looked at it, and I just kind of, like, triple-taked. And, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's more than half of the calendar year spent away from home, 
foreign, you know, foreign beds, foreign cities, all this stuff. And, and just the travel grinds on you. We were talking about driving through the middle of the night from Chicago to Minneapolis and lack of sleep and all that stuff. And because I had gotten married and I'd seen a lot of like these older ball riders, uh, you know, that, that maybe were on their, their next marriage or weren't, you know, they were missing their kid's first t-ball game or high school graduation or whatever because of the job uh it it just kind of all kind of hit me like all these things like newspapers are going away now what you know i'm away from home in this family that i want to start more than i'm there um and it just kind of all came together and then uh in in 2008 uh, our paper started offering buyouts and i shocked the entire sports staff and sports editors when i said i want one uh and they're like well what are you going to do well unbeknownst to most everybody, except for my wife, myself, and my future boss, uh, my wife uh, and I both went to UC Santa Barbara. Santa Barbara is one of the best cities on earth, at least that I visited. Uh, we've always said we wanted to live back there. And just in conversation I had with uh, longtime sports information director Bill Mahoney, he said he was having an opening coming up soon. And I said, would you ever consider me? And it was not about the job. It was about living in Santa Barbara and did the interview, got offered, and the buyout happened. And, like, all these things within the course of, like, six months from the Marriott to marriage to all this stuff, like, kind of happened. And I'm like, yeah, why not? Let's do it. And it it wasn't like I was running away from the stream job or newspapers. I was just thinking, I need something else. I need something different. Um, And it's led me on a fantastic career. And I can't – I loved the four years I was doing it. I'm so glad that I did it but I'm also so glad I'm not doing it anymore. Yeah, I was just going to say, when Dan has been describing some of these stories, whether it was us driving earlier today or during this podcast, there's been numerous times that I thought, I am so glad that I am no longer responsible for doing stuff like that. What has triggered your mind in hearing some of these stories about, or what you do miss? What I do miss, uh, I, I guess, um, although I've, I've kind of already been there, but what I do miss is, Getting the opportunity, and this is going to come out crude and I don't mean it that way, but getting the opportunity to see the country on somebody else's dime, meaning you get new cities, new restaurants, new experiences that, you know, the newspaper is paying you for or the, or the outlet that you're covering is paying you for. I miss that, and I miss, um, and I miss uh, the camaraderie of just kind of the, the, the muck that you're in every day. Like I was saying earlier, like the beat writers, whether you like them or not, like there is some amount of respect there. You're all in the same boat. You know, there is a camaraderie along the way. Um, I miss some of those things. Uh, what I don't miss, whether it's, you know, from a Dan stories or just knowing, you know, talking to Dan and others through the years is you're never off because of Twitter, because of cell phone videos. If a player were to, if a player, Dan covers the twins, if any player within that twins organization, and I'm not talking major league, like all the way down to rookie level, is in a bar fight and it's caught on someone's cell phone video, Dan's got to wake up in the middle of the night and do some form of work. Um, and, and that has drastically changed how you cover baseball. You know, there were stories that Peter Gammons and some others were the ones that kind of reinvented baseball beat writing because they realized the clubhouse was open. So let's write more than just about the game. And that's kind of how I did it. You know, you had your notes and you had your game story. Um, you know, I started doing blogs because the internet was transforming and, 2005-06 and so on um, but now to try to keep up with the pace and all these things like it's insane Dan that, that you keep doing it and that so many other people are doing it it's it's like mad respect to everyone who's doing it 
Um, you know, my respect was the fact that I pumped out all those bylines and traveled and stayed in hotels with bulletproof glass. Like, imagine doing like Twitter and keeping up with it now. It's it, and and all the outlets, right? There's so many more outlets. When I was doing it, it was MLB.com and your basic newspapers, right? Now there's, you know, SportsIllustrated.com and Bleacher Report and whatever out. Like everything where you can find news. Like there's somebody out there that's trying to beat you, um, and it's just it's bonkers. All right, well, we're starting to break out the violin a little bit here about how difficult our lives are, and so that's probably a cue to wrap it up. Plus, we are uh, a little bit longer than what I was planning, but that's fine. Matt Hurst, Dan Hayes, final thoughts before I wrap it up. Uh, I'll go first since I'm done and you're still going. Um, my final thought is I still consider I mean, I have another dream job right now, but I still consider that my first dream job. I'm so happy that I've, I did it. I'm so happy I'm not doing it anymore. But it was some of the best four years of my entire life, and uh, I wouldn't trade it for much of anything. But I'm I'm glad that I did it, and glad that I've turned the page, and I've carved out a completely different career, and, and been lucky in a lot of ways. And I have this amazing relationship with my wife and kid, and I I don't know that I would a hundred percent if I was still a beat writer. Oh, that, that's totally. I mean, it's part of the reason why I don't have any kids that I know of. Um, <clears throat> is that I mean, you know you. I'm gone over 130 days a year. That's a, if I want to be a dad, I want to be a full-time dad. And that's just something I'm kind of, I've always weighed. And the end part is that I love this and I could see myself doing it. I, I would probably slow down a little, but I could see myself. I, I love travel so much that I'm, I'm on board with this. And I, you know, you make so many friends through the years and, and this is a perfect, Example right here, the three of us hanging out and doing these guys trips uh, every year. Uh, can we not do it during the World Series next year, maybe? Um, but I mean, you know, like I could do this trip with about six different groups if I really had the time to do it in the off season. But you're kind of tired of traveling by that point, right? So it, it's you pick and choose your spots. But I, I do love that aspect of it, and I love being around sports. I mean, it's the live event is something everybody's watching and being kind of an expert and the reason I think I got into it was because I can get people comfortable and talking and I want to tell their stories and I love doing that. It's something that I feel like I, I still have the enthusiasm to do it and it's even more so this last year working on my new job. I absolutely have been, it's, it's reinvigorated me and here I am commuting 400 miles to work every other week which is insane. And when I tell people, they look at me like I'm insane. And yet, I absolutely my, my job satisfaction is so much more right now doing this because we get to tell really cool stories, and it's been fun. That's Dan Hayes of The Athletic and Matt Hurst of Amazon. I'm Josh Sushan, and this is Life Around the Seams. <laughs>